Well, we're in the section of the Gospels, the, the Synoptic Gospels, where Jesus has met this rich young ruler, and we talked about him a couple of weeks ago. This rich young man comes to Jesus, and he seems to have everything. He has wealth, and, and he seems to be one who knows the law and who tries to live the law. But he knows something's missing, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments and so forth, and follow me. And or then the man says, well, I've done all the commandments. What do I do now? And Jesus said, give up all your things, and then come follow me. And the man goes away uh, grieving because he is one who has much money. Last week, we talked about the reaction to what this young man did, and we won't go through all of it in great detail, but... Just remind ourselves, Jesus gives a lesson here, and he says that um, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He uh, he watches the man as he goes away, and he I'm sure Jesus himself is, is sad to see this young man go. But one thing we learn from this is that the kingdom, remember what the young man asked for is he asked for how to gain eternal life. And Jesus says, it's hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So we have here the kingdom of heaven. We have the eternal life all connected. And later on, Peter will say, well, what must we do to be saved? How can anyone be saved? Then the connection between salvation, the kingdom, eternal life, those are all intertwined. So when somebody asks to enter the kingdom, they're asking, how do I get eternal life? How do I get saved. And Jesus says here how hard it is to enter the kingdom. He has this, this famous uh, statement about easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And it's kind of kind of amusing, but also very serious, showing how hard it is. In fact, it is impossible. We talked last week about why it's so difficult for the rich in some cases. Now, one is that they have a temptation to self-sufficiency and blindness to their current condition. They don't realize how much they need God. They, they have everything for themselves. They also tend to focus on this life alone. As long as I have a lot of stuff, as long as I have more than another person, um, then that will suit me. I don't need to think about what's coming ahead. There's also a temptation to evil. That is, what will you do to get wealth? If somebody tries to um, wants to get this wealth, will they steal for it? Will they cheat? Will they lie? Uh, will they even murder, in some cases, to gain wealth? And certainly that's been done many times throughout history. And finally, most importantly, there's a temptation to forget God in all of this. They have their, again, self-sufficiency. They have focus on this life. They forget what is to come. And so that's what the things that keep the rich from actually gaining eternal life in many cases. Well, the disciples are astonished by this because they apparently had the idea that if God is the giver of all good gifts, if you have the most gifts, you have the most earthly stuff, then you must be the most blessed by God. And it has some sort of logic to it, even though it's not biblical logic. So if the rich have a hard time entering the kingdom, well then what about us normal folks? How can we be saved? The disciples hear this, they're astonished and said, then who can be saved? Well, then Jesus says something that's even stronger than before. It's not just difficult to enter the kingdom of God. It is impossible. And yet, with God, all things are possible. And the key is, in all this, whether rich or poor for salvation, 
to even happen. It must be God's work. God is the one who can do this impossible thing. It's impossible for any of us on our own to gain salvation, to gain the kingdom, to gain eternal life. It's only possible with God. Let's move on now to the next section as we have a reaction to what Jesus has said. Um, and let's start with Matthew nineteen twenty-seven to 30. Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my namesake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And then Mark 10, 28-31, Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And then Luke's is the shortest, Luke 18, 28 to 30. Peter said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. So back to Peter's observation, Peter's question. He says to Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And in Luke, he says merely, Behold, we have left our homes and followed you. So these are basically the same, except Matthew adds this pointed question, What then will there be for us? From Peter's lips. The rich man we just met wouldn't leave his riches to follow you, but we have left what relatively little we had and followed you. What's in it for us? Just remind ourselves of the, the situations of the disciples. Turn back to the early part of the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, and see how these disciples, at least some of them, left what they had to follow Jesus. Mark chapter 1, and this is in other Gospels as well. Matthew, Mark 1, verse 16. As Jesus was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew. Of course, Simon is Peter. Andrew is the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and went away to follow him. And so, these four fishermen, some of the most prominent of the disciples, follow Jesus. They, they drop their nets, leave their boats, and follow Jesus. A little further down, um, we see in verse 29, this doesn't necessarily mean that they completely abandoned all of their earthly connections, because we see here, uh, verse 29, immediately after they came out of the synagogue, after Jesus has cast out a demon, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So Simon still has uh, this house. Andrew and Simon have share this house together. And we, we meet Simon's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. And so we know that Peter has a wife. Uh, look at Mark chapter 2. 
verse 14. We meet Matthew. Here he's called Levi. As Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. So the, the fishermen and then this tax collector, Matthew, leave what they have to follow Christ. And then verse 13 of Mark 3. He went up on the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he would he could send them out to preach, and so forth. And now, Jesus had more disciples, more followers than just the twelve, but he had this special group of twelve that were going to leave all they had behind to follow Jesus around for some time. It doesn't mean that they abandoned him completely, that they never visited, but that, for the most part, they were traveling with Jesus when he was going from place to place in his ministry. We also see later in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, Paul says, Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? And so apparently the other apostles had wives, and they brought their wives on their missionary journeys, whereas Paul, of course, was not married, at least at this time. And he was traveling uh, as a single man. He had some, accompan- uh, some those who accompanied him, but he didn't have a wife to come along with him. So there were cases where these disciples left their families behind, their homes, their occupations for a while, but they, they could come back to them. They, they didn't go off, as some missionaries have done, leave their families for months or even years, traveling far overseas. It wasn't that situation with the disciples here. But they did leave what they had to follow Jesus. They didn't necessarily utterly forsake everything for all time, but for long periods during Jesus' ministry, they were apart from their families and the previous occupations they had. Now, we can take this question from Peter a couple of ways. One is maybe more mercenary. Well, what's our reward for following you? We left everything. What's in it for us, Jesus? Or it may be, in this context, in view of salvation being impossible with men, they've asked, well, how can anyone be saved? And Jesus says, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So it may be that Peter's asking, well, is there any hope for us? We have left what we have to follow you. Are, are we really in the kingdom? Do we have eternal life? And so Jesus answers Peter's question with a promise. And he says in verses 28 and 29 of Matthew 19, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the resurrection, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my namesake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. And then those marks is about the same length, but that is missing that, that description of sitting on the thrones from verse 28 of Matthew 19. Mark 10, 29 and 30, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. <clears throat> and then, as, as, as I said before, Luke 18 is the shortest, 29 and 30. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. So there are are some slight differences in these passages, but Jesus starts out the same in each one. Truly I say to you, truly I say to you. We've seen this 
many times, and John, he often says, truly, truly, I say to you, but in this case, truly, I say to you, not that every other time he says something that's false. Uh, sometimes people say, I swear this is true, in ordinary conversation, does that make you feel good or bad about what they're going to say? They say, I swear this is true. Are they probably lying? That, that's my indication. If somebody has to say how true something is, I usually am skeptical. But in this case, Jesus isn't just saying that this is true, but that this is important. Pay attention. I'm saying something you need to listen to. Now, we'll skip Matthew 19.28 for right now, but look at the different things that are left. We have houses, farms, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, wife, all the, all the, the things you have or the closest relationships to you, these people are leaving for the sake of Christ. And why are they leaving? Matthew says, for my namesake. Notice the differences here. Matthew says, for my namesake. Mark says, for my sake and for the gospel's sake. And Luke says, for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, I mentioned many times that often Jesus, even when he doesn't give an explicit claim to be God in human flesh, he gives many implicit claims to deity in the way that, that he speaks or that the way the gospel writers present him. Um, like previously, we saw that following Jesus is what leads to eternal life. Now, if, if I say, do you follow me? Because in me you'll find eternal life, that would be blasphemous. It would be ridiculous. But Jesus can say, if you follow me, you will receive eternal life because he is the God-man. He's the Son of God. Now here, we see an equivalence between his namesake. If we leave for Jesus' sake, for his namesake, for the gospel's sake, it's also the sake of the kingdom of God. So following Jesus is the same thing as pursuing the kingdom of God. And, and no mere man could righteously equate these things. I can't, I can't say following me is the same thing as achieving the kingdom of God or for the sake of the kingdom of God. But Jesus can say, if you follow me for my name's sake, it's following me for the sake of the kingdom. And this description here of what these people do to leave all that's precious to them shows the dedication necessary for discipleship. And it's not the first time we've seen this. In Luke 14, Jesus says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's pretty shocking, isn't it? But it's hyperbolic. We, we know that we're supposed to love and care for our families. We, we don't go up to our our children or our parents or our wife and yell at them and say, I hate you so much because I love Jesus so much. That, that would be ridiculous. First um, Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So if we don't take care of what's closest to us, we are like the Gentiles. We are like unbelievers. But Jesus, in this shocking way, is asking us, what is our highest commitment, our greatest love? Compared to our love for God is our love for our family more like hate. That's what he's saying here. So these faithful disciples who have left all to follow Christ, they've shown this dedication to Christ, to his, to following him, to being his disciple. And what will they receive? Well, they will receive something both now and in the future. In Matthew it says, they will receive many times as much Mark says, more specific number, a hundred times as much now in the present age, and Luke says many times as much at this time. Now Jesus is being hyperbolic here. He's exaggerating here also. 
And we won't actually receive a hundred earthly spouses. This, this is not some sort of um, way of getting a lot of wives or, or fathers or mothers. We won't get a hundred farms or hundreds of children and siblings. That, that's not exactly what Jesus is saying here, obviously. The following Christ is not some get-rich-quick scheme. If I, if I leave my job, then God is going to give me a hundred times as much stuff, a hundred wives, a few hundred children, a hundred mothers and fathers, and a hundred farms. It's not focusing on the material so much. But God does give us rich blessings in this life, and though they are not always physical ones, beyond the material blessings we have from Christ, we have the, the joy of knowing Christ himself and the joy of being with his people. And we could go on and on about the, the spiritual blessings we have in this life as we follow Christ. But let's move on a bit. Thinking about these earthly relationships, even if we give them up for a time or in a manner, God does bless us. Mark three thirty four and 35, Jesus said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, that is, his mother and brothers came to see him, but he says, these people who are with me are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And so, for those of you who know Christ, those who are in the family of God, as we often talk about, are my brother, my sister, my mother, my father. We are blessed with these familial relationships inside the body of Christ. And I know that some of you here, and many throughout history have had closer relationships in their churches than in their own families because of the the tight bond we have in fellowship with Christ himself. Now notice here, Mark adds something different from all the other uh, Gospels here. It says, along with persecutions. Now we like to skip over that part. We want to think about the blessings that God gives us, not think about the persecution so much. But Persecution can't be a blessing, can't it? Jesus says here in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So if I want to sing that song, Count Your Many Blessings, name them one by one, I might think of my, my family, my home, my the church, uh, and so forth. But... Do I think, oh, I sure I'm blessed from that guy who treated me bad because I'm a Christian, or the guy who berated me for trying to speak the gospel to him? That's not normally a list of our blessings, is it? But Jesus says we are blessed when this happened because it's happened to others as well. And, and God blesses us when we endure persecution with him. Now, 2 Corinthians 12.10, Paul says this, Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, and then he adds with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So when we are persecuted, when we endure weaknesses, when we endure ill treatment at the hands of, of those who hate God, well, through that weakness, God gives us strength. And so we don't necessarily want to run into persecution, uh, yet we need not fear it either because we know that through it we will be blessed by God. Persecutions themselves are a blessing if they lead to greater dependency on Christ and greater Christ-likeness. Well, we talked some about the blessings we have in this life, and there's more than that. In the future, in the age to come, it says we have eternal life. Eternal life. And this ties in with the beginning of the passage we've been studying the last few weeks, when the young man says, what must I do to inherit 
eternal life. Well, now we have the connection here at the end. When we follow Christ, we get these blessings, including, most importantly, eternal life. And if we have eternal life, whatever earthly blessings we might lose, we have everything. And eternal life, as we've said many times before, it's not just existing forever. And it's not so much a place or a time as a relationship. In John 17, 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The eternal life is knowing God, knowing Jesus Christ. And Paul said in Philippians 3, 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. So Paul is a a rising young star in in the, the Jewish world at this time. Could have had a life like the rich young ruler. In fact, some people think he was the rich young ruler. We don't, don't have evidence of that really. But Paul could have had so many material and superficial spiritual blessings, you might say, as a as a young Pharisee, as a young rabbi. And yet he has suffered the loss of all things and counts them but rubbish so that he might gain Christ. He considers all things to be lost in viewing a view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. So all that he has lost on this earth, all the the position he's lost, all the money, potential money he may have lost, all, all the beatings he's gotten for Christ's sake, uh, all those things are worth it. All those, those losses are gained for the sake of knowing Christ. So we, we look for the, the blessings both now and the blessings to come, eternal life for Christ's sake. Well, let's go back now to what we skipped over in Matthew 19.28. Matthew has this additional statement. You who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, when the promises we looked at, the later portions here are for all of Christ's followers, the ones in verse 28 are just for the 12. And we see similar words in Luke 22, verses 28 to 30. It says, You are those who have stood by me in my trial, speaking to the disciples. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones <clears throat> judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now we ask ourselves here, uh, in this case, what is the regeneration? And there's a number of ideas about this. One difficulty is that this term is only used here, and in Titus 3.5, I think you know this verse, that he saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. But this regeneration is what happens in our hearts when the Spirit comes to, to live in us, to save us, and so it's not the same thing. Jesus isn't talking here in Matthew 19 about the regeneration of your heart but another kind of regeneration. Now, John Calvin says that this regeneration is the first coming of Christ. Others say that this regeneration began after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, so it's something that had started long in the past. But I see it here, and Jesus even says it, it's a time when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. And there are a number of scriptures that say he's enthroned now at the Father's right hand, so maybe that's what it's talking about. Jesus is right now at the Father's right hand, sitting on his glorious throne. But when I hear that phrase, 
coming to sit on his glorious throne, I think of Matthew 25. Matthew 25, we'll see this, who knows when, some months from now probably, but in Matthew 25, verse 31, it says this, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so we have here the Son of Man coming, Jesus Christ, of course. He's sitting on the throne of his glory, his glorious throne. The nations are before him. And he says now, verse 34, You who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. So there's in a sense in which we've inherited the kingdom now, but we haven't inherited it yet until this event happens. That's when the inheritance truly becomes ours fully and finally. And so I think the regeneration here back in Matthew 19 is referring to this regeneration here, that is, when Christ comes again and sits on his throne. I believe this is when he sits on his throne in Jerusalem on this earth. Um, I think this connects with Acts 3.21, where it says that heaven must receive Christ until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of its holy prophets from ancient time. Not exactly the same word, but the same idea. There's a period of restoration. So Christ is gone for a time, but when he comes back, there will be a period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Now, some commentators think this restoration time is the eternal state that is in the final new heavens and the new earth as well. So again, different views, whether it's when Jesus came the first time, whether it's when Jesus sits on his throne on the earth in in a more uh, premillennial view, or those who think it's the eternal state when Jesus is uh, fully and finally in heaven with the new heavens and new earth and there's no more more death, no more sin. Um, I I tend to think it's the the second one when Jesus sits on his, his throne in the millennial time. Now, another question is, besides what is the restoration, we have a question, what is this promise to the disciples? What does the promise mean? He says, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And again, there are a number of views on this. Uh, some say that's referring to the 12 actually judging national Israel before the eternal state, and that's during the millennial kingdom, that's, that's my view, that the 12 disciples judging Israel, and again, before the eternal state. Uh, another view is that the, this is referring not to the disciples so much, but to the church judging national Israel during the millennial kingdom. So the, the disciples here are kind of a stand-in for the whole church, uh, ruling over Israel, judging them when Christ comes back. Others think that this is a re- reference to the 12 judging or having authority over the elective Israel in heaven, in the eternal state. Or it could be that the, this is the 12 who are judging all the elect in heaven. So not just national Israel in heaven, but all the elect. And they will take in verses like Galatians 6.16, which refers to the Israel of God, likening it to the church. So uh, those of this view tend to associate promises to Israel with promises to the church. So whether the question is the actual 12 judging the actual nation of Israel on the earth, or the, the church or the 12 judging Israel or all the church in heaven, again, much discussion about those things in, in the commentaries. Um, there's another question 
of whether judging refers specifically to judging as we would see it, like judgment in a courtroom, like guilty, not guilty, or if it's more the idea of, of ruling, like the judges in the book of Judges. We're not judges in uh, fancy powdered wigs and black robes, but they were judges in the sense that they had authority over these these various tribes, these, these portions of Israel. So is this judgment, again, more more related to the courtroom, guilty, not guilty, or is it more judging in the sense of ruling over them, having authority over them? And we could spend a lot of time going through the various views, but for right now, as I said, the best way to understand it, in my view, is the first one I mentioned, that the restoration here doesn't refer to the eternal state, but to Jesus' millennial rule on the earth, where Christians will reign with Christ, and in particular, the twelve will reign over national Israel. We look back at the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel chapter 7. Again, we don't have a lot of time to, to dig into this. We could spend a long time discussing the, the various views of what this all means. Um, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom Then all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. We've talked about this a number of times, especially in reference to the term Jesus took upon himself, the Son of Man. We even see it in our passage for today. The Son of Man is sitting on his glorious throne. The Son of Man is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Verse 18 in this context says, The saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. So this kingdom from verse 14 is one not just inherited by the Son of Man, but also one that is shared with the saints of the highest one. They will receive the kingdom. Remember it said in Matthew 25, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. They're receiving this kingdom along with the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21 says, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the same, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Again, a reference to them possessing the kingdom. These these saints of God, these holy ones of God. And in verse twenty-five, and we don't have time to go into all the, the personalities here, but there's um, there's another uh, king arising. Verse twenty-five says he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. So again, we have the reference to this everlasting kingdom. We have the description of the kingdom given to the saints of the highest one. So the Son of Man comes. He has his kingdom, he sets it up, and he shares that kingdom and the the ruling of that kingdom with his holy ones, with his saints. Coming back to the New Testament, remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? And now the question is, when is this judgment happening? Happening in the, the millennial kingdom or at some other time? But the saints do have a, a portion in God's 
judgment work and God's ruling work in his kingdom. And then finally, for now, we'll look at Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. Verses 11 to 16. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Of course, this is referring to Jesus Christ, Revelation written by John, connecting it back to the very opening words of his gospel. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in white linen, uh, linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his name and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we have Jesus Christ coming and reigning on the earth. We see this, verse 15, he will rule them with a rod of iron, reference to, to Psalm 2. And so we have the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Word of God, coming and reigning over the nations. Again, a connection, I think, to the kingdom that we've seen in Matthew 19, Matthew 25, Daniel 7, and here in Revelation 19. In chapter 20, verse 4, it says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the Word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And there's a connection with the millennial kingdom, that these these martyrs come to reign with Christ. They rule over the earth for a thousand years after he has come and established his kingdom. So this all happens. Again, this is my view of the end times here. This happens before the new heaven and the new earth of Revelation 21. Revelation 21 one says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's the final state, the eternal state, when all sin is washed away. This, this reigning with Christ on the earth happens before that. Uh, in a time when there's still rebellion, there are still those who uh, will, while they're ruled by Christ, they will not bow the knee to Christ, at least not in their hearts. Now, one question you might ask yourselves is that Jesus here speaking to the twelve, you have twelve thrones. Well, there's one man who is not who is in this audience here who is not going to rule later on. Who's that man? Judas, the son of perdition. Judas was not promised anything here. He was outside even then. And so the question is, who is the one who's sitting on this extra chair? And I believe it's Matthias, as we see in Acts chapter one. They cast lots to find them one who will replace Judas and that man is Matthias. And so even though we know nothing else about Matthias, after Acts chapter 1, uh, we believe that he is, I believe anyway, he's the one who's sitting here on this place. Not the Apostle Paul or somebody else, but this man Matthias, who was uh, given by God to take uh, Judas's place. Well, we come then to Jesus' conclusion, and I'll do this quickly because you have to stay for my sermon Hear more about this later. So, no fair leaving after this. But Jesus says here, in conclusion, many who are first will be last, and the last first in Matthew 19.30, and basically the same thing in Mark 10.31. But many who were first, who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus will illustrate this truth with the parable 
He'll give only in Matthew 20 for the, the service, sermon today. So we won't spend time on it now, except to say that what God does is not always what we expect, and God's assessment doesn't necessarily match ours. What we perceive as first and God's sight might be last. What God perceives as first might be last in our own eyes. And so we need to align our expectations, our valuations with God's. Well, any questions on this before we wrap up with a couple of lessons? Okay. So you're all perfect agreement with me, right? You can't come back later and say, I disagree with you on this. Okay. Well, let's close with a couple of lessons. And I was really blessed by James Montgomery Boyce's commentary on this passage. And he notes that this, this section here, when Jesus talks about the blessings we have from God following him, they teach the blessings found in, I should say, this is a quote, these passages teach that the blessings found in Christ's service are greater than the blessings we could have apart from it. The blessings found in Christ's service are greater than the blessings we could have apart from it. End quote. Uh, the rich young ruler was focused on his immediate blessings, his wealth. He, he couldn't see the spiritual blessings that awaited him as a follower of Christ. Now, if this young man had given up everything and followed Christ, maybe he would have ended up like Paul. We said before, he suffered the loss of all things. But again, remind yourself of what he said in Philippians 3.8. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. So when the rich young ruler looked at his stuff, he put a value on it. He looked at Jesus and following Jesus and what he might lose to follow Jesus. He put a value on that. The value he placed on his stuff was much higher than the value he placed on following Christ. But Paul had the opposite view. There's a surpassing value in knowing Christ. Knowing Christ is above all the riches in the universe. Take all, all the, the gold, the silver, platinum, whatever precious metals, whatever precious stones, whatever other things, the, the land, the seas, all that's in them, all the stars, all of those things you might want, even if you might gain them all as the emperor over the world, all those things pale in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Christ our Lord. And so we can be thankful that while we might see, see people who are rich and famous, people who have lots of money, we know that if we have Christ, we possess all things. Easy to forget that when we get to the end of the month and there's less money than we thought there ought to be, or when we maybe don't have a, a nicer car, we have to uh, maybe tighten the belt a little bit for certain amounts of time, or there's a, a ministry we love support that we can't because we just don't have the money for it. It's easy to see the, the lack of blessing, but may God open our eyes to see the blessings we have in Christ Jesus. And so that's, that's point one from James Boyce. The blessings found in Christ's service are greater than the blessings we can have apart from it. Secondly, Boyce notes that these blessings are secure. Uh, the rich young man could have lost his wealth in a moment like Job did. Or at best, he might have enjoyed it till his death. But as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6-7, we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. This rich young man without Christ, the moment he died, lost all that stuff and had nothing. But under our loving Father's good hand, 
everything he wants us to have is safe. Especially our treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. So stuff we have is secure unless God for some reason takes it away from us. And yet whatever we have in heaven, no thief can steal. Nothing can rot it. Nothing in heaven and earth can take it away from us. So instead of complaining about what we don't have, may we look for God's blessings and may we be grateful for and content with our earthly blessings and keep our eyes on the heavenly blessings to come. Let's close in prayer. Father, we confess, I confess anyway, that I can often forget the many blessings you have given to me, focus on the difficulties, the struggles, the things that I don't have and that I might want, maybe even things I feel like I'm owed. And yet, you have given me all the things that I need and so much more. And you've given me Christ. You've given us Christ who know him. We pray that that would be enough for us, that we could be content with these things. May you root out discontent. We know this bitterness and, and envy can be so hard to uproot that we do know that by your spirit you can do this. Help us to be content with what we have, to treasure Christ even more above all earthly things. May all other things pale in comparison to knowing him that we might eagerly await the glories to come with Jesus Christ. We thank you for him and for all your blessings to us. In his name we ask. Amen.